When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Rashawn Evans, and you're listening to the No Nonsense Podcast. Nonsense, a Tennessee Titans podcast, your place to go for on-demand Titans coverage that is 100% free of the nonsense that we always see in sports talk these days. I'm Luke Worsham, joined by the other two hosts of No Nonsense, Matthias Wadner and Will Lomas. We are back for our second straight week of recapping the 2020 Titans season. We had a great first week of doing that last week. If you want to go check out that episode, you really should. Because we had Mike Herndon on and we had a lot of great discussions about some of the problems that ultimately led to the collapse of the Titans in the first round of the playoffs. Now, we're, we're still not quite looking ahead of the offseason because there's still a lot of topics regarding the 2020 Titans and, and sort of wrapping up this season that we have to talk about. And so that's what we'll be doing today. If you like what you're listening to, you can get more of us on social media by following us at No Nonsense Pod on both Twitter and Facebook. You can also subscribe to or follow our show on whatever platform you use to listen. That way you will get easier and faster access to all of our new episodes every Wednesday. All right, guys, let's start with this because I think to me this was the most encouraging news to come out about the Titans over the last week. So we were sort of doom and gloom even just a week ago on the prospects of Mike Vrabel actually hiring a um, a coordinator from outside of the building on either side of the ball. So Arthur Smith has gone to Atlanta. We're going to get into that a little bit later. So the Titans have an opening at offensive coordinator. And then, of course, the Titans had the very weird setup at defensive coordinator where it was essentially Shane Bowen, but for some reason he didn't have the title. Report came out. This past week that Vrabel had tried to get in contact or, or tried to get Clemson's offensive coordinator to potentially be Arthur Smith's replacement. That, to me, was a bit of, certainly a surprise. And then a, a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette came out and said that Terrell Austin, who is on Mike Tomlin's staff with the Steelers, interviewed with the Titans for the defensive coordinator position. I've been talking for a while, so I'll just turn it over to y'all. What do we take away from from this news? I don't know if we could totally take away that they will hire someone from the outside. This could be them just doing their due diligence. Uh, I don't know exactly what the process is in the NFL. I I know we have the Rooney rule, um, and and I know you have to interview a specific amount of people. I'm not entirely sure how many or or what the rules are with that, but – I still do think it's an encouraging sign. I don't know if it means they will uh, hire f- from the outside for both coordinator positions. Probably not because they just haven't done it that way for, for a while. Uh, but I hope so. I, I, I was intrigued by that by that, um, by that that report about the Clemson offensive coordinator because I love their offense. And I know the jump from college to the NFL is a big one, but I love their 
their schemes, and I, I thought that would have been a really, really, really good hire and a really like high upside, you know, so a hire with it with a big ceiling. Uh, although the floor might have been lower than than maybe a retreader or someone more established at the NFL level. Uh, at defensive coordinator, I'm not like I'm not going to jinx this because Will is gonna is gonna kill me for it. But I like I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised at all if if it's just Shane Bowen and they're just doing these uh, outside interviews just to say, oh look, we we really tried to get someone in there, but Shane Bowen just seemed like the best option. Hopefully, I'm wrong. Hopefully, I'm wrong because. It it, it 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 was just horrendous this year, but uh, we'll see, we'll see. I, although I am encouraged that, uh, especially Tara Lawson, like I, I know he has a bad rap because his defenses weren't that great at the NFL level uh, in the past, but the Lions and the Bengals aren't exactly outstanding organizations. And if you read uh, all the comments from Pittsburgh Steelers fans uh, on that tweet about him interviewing with the Titans. They're pretty upset uh, at the fact of potentially losing him uh, because his unit w- was one of the better units on the team, and-, and a lot of people don't want him to leave. Yeah, and just while we're talking about Austin, he also comes from Pittsburgh where I think they either led the league in sacks or they've been right up there for like the last three years. So. I mean, they're a very aggressive defense, but they seem to, you know, be able to handle it on the back end, which is important. And he was able to do that this year. So, yeah, like he he's he's encouraging. I, I would like him just in, in terms of when you compare him to Shane Bowen, because I would like literally anybody, anybody other than Shane Bowen. But, yeah, that is terrifying. I hate that you bring that up. You've said that before in our uh and like DMs and stuff. So I hate that you brought it up on the podcast because I just feel like this is going to be something that gets clipped up and I'm going to remember it later. But hopefully, hopefully it, Mike Vrabel keeps going to John Robinson saying like, look, I don't know, like maybe Shane's the right guy. And John Robinson just has like a printout of like the phrase historically bad third down defense. And anytime Mike Vrabel talks, he just holds it up like in the middle of a sentence and just is like, no, like, you were the worst in the NFL ever at this, and it's what many people agree is the most important thing in football. Like, this is this is bad. You cannot do this again. And hopefully one good game in the playoffs against a bad quarterback doesn't change the narrative that the defense is the reason why the Titans lost any games this year. So that's, I mean, that's one thing. Going back to the offense, I don't really know – I should say I like the fact that they looked at Clemson's OC. Like I do like that in like a meta way because I like that they're looking at the college ranks and they're not just looking at who does Mike Vrabel know, who's worked with Sean McVay and LaFleur and like who's worked in that system before. Like it's not necessarily that. But I also don't know that the Clemson offense would translate really well to what the Titans do. Like I think they like to use more receivers and pass it a lot more. I mean, I think they've been been very Trevor Lawrence and Deshaun Watson dependent when they've had those quarterbacks, and I don't think that's what suits this team the best from a personnel standpoint or from like a personality standpoint. So my big concern is I hope they don't confuse themselves and say, well, we should get the best head coach or best offensive coordinator we could get, and then we can bring in the pieces around him because – if you do that, what happens is that guy interviews after this year and goes and take and goes and takes a head coaching job while you're halfway in the middle of a transition from a zone scheme to you know a gap scheme or whatever you're want, or more of a run heavy style of offense, and then you're stuck halfway through a transition with no identity. So they have to be very careful of that. But I don't mind at all. In fact, the North Carolina, I, I was I'll say this and then we can go on to the next topic. But the North Carolina. Uh, offensive coordinator somebody who I'd really look at because he runs more of a spread out uh, zone scheme that still heavily features the run but also supported several like thousand yard receivers and he was AJ Brown's wide receiver or he was AJ Brown's offensive coordinator his sophomore and junior year when he really broke out so I mean there's offensive coordinators at the college level that I think merit interest but I'm not sure Trevor Lawrence's OC is who I would go after to me, I think it is an indication, not necessarily of the direction that they're going to go in. I mean, I don't know that they're going to hire Terrell Austin to be the defensive coordinator. However, 
Vrabel adamant all year, you know, got you know, it's not the problem is not that we don't have a defensive coordinator. That's not the problem. That's not the problem. This sure to me sounds like him acknowledging the problem. Now, let me say this because I think this is a very important distinction to make. The problem here is not that, and I think I said this last week too, the problem here is not that the Titans don't have or did not have a defensive coordinator. They did. His name was Shane Bowen. Him having the name tag was not going to change anything. So the problem is not that Vrabel didn't hire a defensive coordinator. The problem is that he didn't hire a good one. Because Shane Bowen just stunk at his job. It wasn't good. And so, you know, the the rejoicing that should take place from Titans fans, should they hire Austin or anyone else, is not, man, we finally have someone to call the defense. Because they have someone to call the defense. It, again, this was not some sort of, like, hodgepodge, We'll just kind of figure it out as we go, fly by the seat of our pants. That's not what the Titans were doing. They just had people in charge that weren't good at their jobs. And so the plan now needs to be find someone who is good at that to do that. I, I, yeah, I guess. But I, I don't understand why he didn't just give him the title. Like, well, it, it just yeah. caused so much confusion. That, and that is a good point because Vrabel came out in the day after the season-ended press conference and said something along the lines of, well, I guess I apologize. I didn't realize this thing would carry out a life of its own. Okay. He did not yeah. announce. He, he did not. The words Shane Bowen is calling the defensive plays, you know when that came out of his mouth? Week two. They had already played a game at that point. And, and, and all offseason – it it, it it went from we don't know yet to very coy kind of beating around the bush answers. So the confusion, that's squarely on Mike Vrabel. And I think you bring up a great point too, Matias, which Paul Kuharski brought up in the uh, that, that press conference, the end of season press conference, which is if he was good enough to have all these responsibilities, you know, he's running the meetings, he was, he was uh, calling the defensive plays, all this stuff. If he was good enough to have all those responsibilities, then why wasn't he good enough to have the title? And Vrabel's answer to that was this very bizarre thing where he said, it is a great honor to make decisions as a head coach in the NFL. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know what to say to that because I don't know what that means, honestly. But my thing is, if Vrabel had this much confidence in Shane Bowen to let him run meetings, which we didn't find out until the end of the season, to run meetings and call plays and do everything a defensive coordinator does, then I don't understand why he didn't just have the confidence to call him his defensive coordinator, especially when he made him this because he just felt so comfortable with him because they've known each other since, well, like 2012, I think it was, when they were at Ohio State. Uh, I think they were together in Houston also. He comes here. Uh, so... I don't know, man. Like, what a weird situation, which just, like Vrabel said, it took on a life of its own, but it only did so because Vrabel was completely, you know, in the, like, he kept everyone in the dark with all of this stuff. And you say that Vrabel said that in, in week two that Bowen was calling the place. I don't even remember that because up until last week, I was still. I'm still in the dark about what the actual structure of the defensive coordinator position was. And we finally got some clarity, but we didn't get it until literally the season-ending press conference. Uh, and I think that was probably for Vrabel to save some face and, and just, you know, avoid criticism that, that Vrabel actually had more uh, – you know, more leeway with the defense than he probably led on. But I, I don't know. It's just weird situation. And all I'll say is if Bowen remains a defensive coordinator, or if he gets the promotion or whatever it is, there there might be riots, man. There might be riots in Nashville. And I, I think I've said this before in this whole theory that, oh, Mike Vrabel is trying to protect Shane Bowen. I, I don't get that at all. Like, I get how some people can try to, you know, retroactively make his decision make sense. To me, and, and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before, if I've just said this to y'all, but it feels like 
when you see your friend and he's like, oh, I'm going to go meet up with a girl later. And he keeps saying it over and over and over. And you're like, is this your girlfriend? And he says, no, no, no. Like, uh, we don't do titles or anything like that. Like, I, you know, I don't, you know, we're not, we're not dating or anything, but he keeps, keeps hanging out with her and keeps hanging out with her. And then a year later, he finally admits it, but he was too ashamed to do that for the well, first year. Well, there's a problem like, with your, there's it, a problem, there's a problem speaks. with the analogy here. And the problem is that it's not just that he's hanging out with her. It's that he's like making yeah. out with her in front of everyone. And then it's like, oh, but we're just, yeah. we're just buddies. They it, he invites her to every like event that y'all have like other friends birthday parties and like she picks out the food for him and all that like I mean it's it's just it it's just shame like I I think that's what this all goes down to is he was ashamed to say that Shane Bowen was a defensive coordinator because he was and I mean I feel like we just berate the guy but you know once you're a defensive coordinator this is kind of what you sign up for but he was just utterly unqualified. You know, his position groups had not excelled at the NFL level. He had never been anywhere without direct oversight from from Brable. He had never called a play, not at a high school level, not at a college level. Not, I mean, never. And you handed him the keys to a Dean P's defense that was used to leadership and was used to tip sheets every week and was used to a certain level of coaching and just said, here you go. And. Not only that, but you didn't make it clear to everybody involved, you know, this is where the buck stops. This is who you talk to if you have a problem. And, th- I mean, that's a problem. And he knew – I I don't believe that he can claim ignorance to say, oh, I, I'm so shocked that this was such a big deal. I guess it just took on a life of its own. No, everybody asked you if you'd made a decision every single media availability you had, you – shoot it shoot it away and ignored the questions and just rolled on over and over and over again and then it didn't work out we all saw what was happening and then at the end of the year you're just trying to save face it's like it was a conscious decision it was a bad decision and it was one that didn't work so hiring a defensive coordinator is a positive step i'm not sure that it was his decision I, I have yet to see anything that makes me think that this was his decision or even that they're seriously considering upgrading the defensive coordinator position because, like like we said, we've heard one name on each side of the ball, and that's it. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes, but I am pessimistic at this point until we get more information. What about offensive coordinator? Well, I mean, Matias, you, you – you talked about it a little bit but where, where do we think they go because you know Mike Herndon came on last week and mentioned Keith Carter as the uh you know the the next best in-house option but I have a problem with the logic of okay you're a great offensive line coach therefore you would be a great play caller like to me it's two different disciplines you get what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't think with offensive coordinator, it's quite as simple as who is our best and most successful defensive coach, or excuse me, position coach, if you're the Titans, because that that really has, to me anyway, no correlation with game planning and making situational decisions within a game. I I agree. I, I, I'm of the same thought process. I, I don't love the idea of an offensive line coach being the guy running your offense. I don't know how many offensive previous offensive line coaches are actually offensive coordinators uh, in the NFL. I doubt it's very many. Uh, and really his only experience as not an offensive line coach is as a running, running backs coach, I think, for one season. Uh, and he was also an offensive quality control coach, which I don't know what they do. I don't know what that person does. I really don't think they do much. So I wouldn't be very inspired. But that said, I was not inspired by the Arthur Smith hire at all. And he completely exceeded my expectations. So I'm not going to, you know, judge the book by its cover if Keith Carter is the one who gets promoted and gets this job because I just didn't think Arthur Smith was was going to do very much of anything. Uh, and he ended up being one of our best offensive coordinators possibly ever. So uh, I don't want to write the book there, but I would rather see them go out and and find uh, an up-and-coming offensive coordinator, maybe from the college ranks, 
I, I know Rabel uh, wanted Ryan Day back back in the day before. I think that was the offseason he got uh, Matt Lafleur. Ryan Day was one of the one of the offensive coordinators, or was it the or was it the offseason after? No, it was it was his first year. It was it was when he got Lafleur, right? That he wanted Ryan Day also. Right, two thousand eighteen, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Day made the right decision because he's now the head coach of Ohio State. But I mean, the fact I know that they knew each other from Ohio State, but the fact that Rabel wanted to dip into the college ranks to get an offensive coordinator, I think, is was a pretty good sign and probably a sign uh, along with this with this Clemson rumor that um, that he's willing to expand. And I I hope that's true because. A lot of new ideas can be brought into the team, and in order to keep the offense flowing as it has the last two seasons, I think we're going to have to implement some new changes because, you know, it, it's just logical that defensive coaching staffs are, are going to wise up to some of the, some of the, some of the plays the Titans run, run, and the scheme that they run. So, I, I think it'd be good to get a, a fresh face in there. Yeah, and. I kind of already talked about the North Carolina OC and how I like him, but you know, there's, there's several people that I would, I would talk to Anthony Lynn is somebody that I really like uh, Pep Hamilton too. Like I think that they did a lot of good stuff last year when they had, they started off with Torod Taylor and then they went to Justin Herbert and lit it up. And I, I think the problem with Anthony Lynn specifically is just, I don't, I don't think he's a head coach. Like I think he's an offensive coordinator who, when he didn't have a veteran quarterback and Phillip Rivers kind of lost track of how to manage a game. And I just don't think he ever developed that part of, you know, being a head coach. So, you know, like I think he would be a, a good person when you look at what he did with different like skill position players. And, you know, Keenan Allen is a third round guy who kind of developed and really shined under Anthony Lynn and then Austin Eckler. I think he did a lot and he never had a good offensive line and he ended up with a broken Phillip Rivers for a year and still managed to put up points. So I think he's interesting. Again, I think with the way the Titans organization is basically turning offensive coordinators into head coaches. I think the most important thing that they need is I think you can think outside the box, but you really have to think unless I'm going to have this guy for two plus years and I'm guaranteed, which you aren't at this point because now you've become a pipeline. But if you're not going to have a guy for two years, you can't pick a guy who's like, okay, we're going to go four wide receivers. I mean, you've got to pick a guy who at the very least believes in having a good running game because if you go to somebody who doesn't think running backs matter and who want, you know, is somebody from the cliff Kingsbury tree or somebody from college who just likes to spread it out more, you're just putting a round peg in a square hole and it's going to kill you. So I, I think the one thing that is as a prerequisite that I want for the Titans offensive coordinator is somebody who understands that the running game and play action is really important to the success of the key players like Derrick Henry, AJ Brown and Ryan Tannehill. Let's talk a little bit now about the departed Titans coordinator, Arthur Smith, who accepted the head coaching job with the Atlanta Falcons. I think when just about anybody looked at the teams out there hiring a head coach, a lot of people said, uh, mostly because of Justin Herbert, the weapons and the personnel, the LA Chargers would be the preferred destination for a coach. But uh, the, the Chargers, number one, didn't seem terribly interested in Arthur Smith. I know they interviewed him once. But there, based on the reports we saw, it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of steam after that. Uh, the Falcons were, I mean, it's hard to call any team that had to fire its coach a dream spot. But the Falcons have a history of success, have a talented and invested owner in Arthur Blank. They have a quarterback in Matt Ryan. He's 31, but you still have Julio Jones. You have maybe the best young receiver in the league in Calvin Ridley. Some pieces on defense, notably, um, his name is escaping me, the linebacker, number 45, really fast player. Deion Jones. Jones. Okay, yeah, we, okay, we thought of it at the same time. Um, 
it's a great spot, I think. You're not going to have to perform open-heart surgery on this team, I think, to get them back to winning. And I think Arthur Smith is well-equipped to be able to have success with the Falcons. Yeah, I, re- I really like this landing spot for him, especially given their offensive talent. I, I mean, they're probably one of the most talented offenses in the league, and they showed it at times this year, although, although they fell flat in some games. But most of their losses came because their head coach was just terrible at in-game management and because their defense was really bad until Raheem Morris took over and, and kind of got more hands-on uh, uh, with, with the team. But... I do like their team. I think they have talented players. Uh, we'll see how they draft. I think there's a really interesting de- draft for them. I'm not sure what pick they have. I think maybe four, four or five, or, or one of those picks. Four sounds so, right. So, yeah, I don't know if they go quarterback. I think that would be really interesting. I think Matt Ryan still has a couple of years left, and I think uh, Arthur Smith could actually get a lot out of him in, in these remaining years. But they do seem like a team that that kind of needs a bit of a rebuild and kind of needs to think about the future. So pairing a young quarterback, possibly who might need some development, maybe someone like Trey Lance uh, with Matt Ryan, I think that would be really interesting. And I think it would set Arthur Smith up for both success in the present and success in the future. And I think he's going to kill it, man. I, I really do. Like this team has been good in the past. And the only reason they were bad was because Dan Quinn was just a bad head coach. Like, he was just bad at a lot of things, mostly in-game management. And also his side of the ball, the defense, was terrible. So if Arthur Smith gets the right hire at defensive coordinator, I wouldn't be surprised to see this team back in the playoffs sooner than later. Yeah. I My big concern and why I didn't think the Atlanta job was super attractive is – do y'all know how much Matt Ryan's cap number is this year? Uh, I'll just tell you, it's forty-one million dollars this year. Woo! That Ooh. is that is, and if you cut him, you have to pay him forty-nine million dollars this year. Yeah, so, so they're not going to cut him. The, Good right. lord! And Julio's number is twenty-three million, and he plays about a half a season uh, on average over the last couple of years. So. They're paying those two guys half of their sal- a third of their salary cap, and then you've also got twenty million dollar cap hits for Grady Jarrett, Jake Matthews, and then an eighteen point six million dollar cap hit for Dante Fowler. So they do not have a lot of flex- uh, flexibility, and even if the cap goes up to let's say one hundred and ninety five million, they're still going to be fifteen or twenty million dollars over the cap, and that's a bad place to be. Um, they're also losing Alex Mack, which is pretty important. Like we've seen how much Ben Jones really helps this offense for the Titans and how important it is that you have a good center who knows what his job is and how to communicate with the guards. It, it's, it's an attractive job. You, you have the pieces in, in the building to be successful on offense and some players on defense that, you know, can be splashy and do good things. Like it's, it's still a good job, but my big concern for Arthur Smith is he's going to have to be a first-time head coach with guys who are already established in Matt Ryan and who, you know, guys who have a certain idea of how they want to play, how things are run. And they don't have a bunch of, I I mean, Matt Ryan may play a bunch more years. I don't don't know. Quarterbacks can play a long time, but Julio doesn't have a, doesn't have a lot of time left and neither one of their contracts are like negotiable or movable. So, you, if you're Arthur Smith, you can say, you know, we're going to run this offense this way. And Matt Ryan's like, I know I'm not going to. And then you don't have any recourse because you can't cut him. And he knows that, it, I mean, he's basically locked in for longer than you are on his contract. So it's it's a really tough place to be. And, you know, you hope that success and the, the fact that it's a business and everybody understands that you hope that everybody understands that we're all moving towards the same goal, but to have such an old quarterback run that boot scheme and that, you know, heavy play action scheme, it, it worked for Matt Ryan when he was six years younger or seven years younger, but I'm just not sure it's going to work now. And that's my big concern 
But like I said, you know, at four, you can draft a replacement quarterback and prepare down the line, but you're going to have to prepare to have a four win season this year. You know, if you don't get, if you don't grab immediate help with the fourth overall pick, that's, that's probably going to be something that comes back and bites you. But, you know, if, if, Atlanta's committed to him for four years. I think that he can turn this team around. I think they've got enough young pieces in place to where after Matt Ryan and Julio, you've got guys, like I said, like Grady Jarrett and Dante Fowler who are all young enough. And you've got, you've got Calvin Ridley. You've got enough talent on that team to build around while you're trying to prepare for the future. But man, it, it, it scares me to death if, if they need him to have success immediately. Just because, like I said, you're going to be without your starting center. You're going to be in a position where I, I that just anytime you have contracts that are that big for people that are that important to the franchise, it just makes me super nervous. Well, I, I think, first of all, I think oftentimes it is better to go to a good organization than one that has a lot of talent. And I think you, Arthur Smith may have gotten both with this because, you know, I, I just think there's a sense of stability, like I said earlier, when, when Arthur Blank is your owner. And, and Arthur Blank does not have – is not a tight leash kind of guy. This is not an organization that has historically cycled through coaches at nauseum like we've seen happen in – in Cleveland and in Detroit and in some of these other places where it seems like, you know, every one or two years there's a new guy in there. So I think that helps too. But I think Arthur Smith understands something that a lot of coaches don't, and that is culture. Now, we haven't seen him do it. He's never been a head coach. But, you know, he's worked with some great culture coaches in Vrabel and, and with Malarkey. And he talks all the time about, having a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. That was something he talked about when he was the uh, the offensive coordinator when when they were struggling at the beginning of last season, the Titans in 2019. Uh, and then things turned around when Tannehill came in and we start, sort of started to see the payoff of him talking all the time about growth. Uh, and so, you know, what you're not going to get with Arthur Smith is this guy in Dan Quinn whose teams repeatedly collapse in the fourth quarter and, you know, it sort of becomes this running joke and a meme. That will not happen with Arthur Smith. He is too good of a culture coach to let that happen. And then that's one of the strengths of Mike Vrabel is he always talks about, you know, the Titans don't want a bunch of front runners. They don't want guys who are just kind of, buy in when it's going well and quit and complain when it's not going well. So I have every reason to believe that Arthur Smith is going to be a successful head coach for me. And again, you, you all who listen to this know I'm a picky guy. I, I'm not someone who sits around praising everyone. Arthur Smith checks all the boxes for me. Yeah. And I think uh, learning from Vrabel and coming from, an organization that, that has been winning consistently for quite a while now. I think that will help him uh, in this job. And uh, like you said, he will have the backing of the owner. Arthur Blank is a very patient man, and he's loyal to at least his last two head coaches, Mike Smith and Dan Quinn. They were around forever. He might have been loyal to a fault, as we ended up seeing uh, with both of them, actually. But I think that works in Arthur Smith's favor. Uh, although at times it can it, it can lead to some complacency uh, from the head coach, but I, I, Arthur Smith doesn't strike me as that kind of guy. Uh, and I also think it's good for him that he's coming in with a new general manager, Terry Fontenot, uh, and Dimitrov is gone. I think having that fresh start and being able to build a relationship with the general manager who's also coming in at the same time as you, uh, I think that's going to work to his benefit. And I think... I hope they give him some uh, some say in personnel decisions because I think that that'll be really important uh, to having that chemistry between the GM and the head coach. And another thing that we're forgetting, he's also going to be able to work with uh, an old friend of his, uh, Rustin Webster, who is somehow still in the Falcons organization as a scout. So that's wow. awesome for him. <laughs> uh, I mean, that – I. I was going to say something about Arthur Smith, but I just was completely speechless. I forgot Webster even existed. Uh, yeah, like Arthur Smith is that 
I don't know. Like, if you're asking me, do I think he's a good enough coach to win football games in the NFL and be successful? Yeah, I absolutely do. But, you know, and like you said, maybe Arthur Blank is patient. Maybe that's fine. But the league has shifted into so much of, you know, what do you do in your first two seasons? And then we'll judge you. And if it's not good enough, we'll fire you. You know, uh, maybe Arthur Smith's patient or maybe uh, Arthur Blank is patient. But, man, I, I just I don't see any short term success with this team right now. And I I know that we give him credit, but I think Dan Quinn went to the Super Bowl in like his first or second or maybe his third season. It was somewhere relatively early in his tenure. So, I mean, they're used to seeing results pretty quick. So even if he's typically somebody who gives a lot of leeway, if you're saying, well, the last guy you had was a a giant bust by the end of his career, but at least for the first few years he was successful and you look at Arthur Smith and he doesn't have that success. What, what's your logical conclusion? And I hate to bring this part into it, but Arthur Blank's old, like old owners do not have a lot of time to sit around and wait and just let this team slowly grow. So I I think the position or the franchise, I guess I'll say is a scary place to be, but I'm glad he got a, a job and, you know, hopefully I'm wrong and hopefully they can fix the cap stuff sooner than later and everything works out. But I, I think even if he's not successful in Atlanta, he will be a successful coach someday. We're going to take a 30-second break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the rest of the AFC South because, boy, is there news elsewhere in the division with the Jaguars hiring Urban Meyer and the Texans being the Texans. We're going to touch on all of that. We're going to talk about the Texans' dysfunction. We're going to talk about... Uh, Reverend Easterby, or whatever his title is. Uh, We'll get to all of that in 30 seconds. Welcome back. We are here again, and we are now going to get into the rest of the AFC South. Let's start with the Jaguars, guys. I love the hire of Urban Meyer. I think there's a lot of people who are too quick wanting to kind of be cutesy and against the grain and be like, I don't know. Look, you can coach football, you can coach football. I get the argument that he had at Ohio State and at Florida, overwhelming rosters that just beat the teams that they faced. However, there is a certain managerial aspect to Urban Meyer. You know, we talk all the time about how Vrabel is sort of the leader of men coach, and he's about culture. He's not necessarily a a scheme guy. Urban Meyer is kind of that perfected. Now, is this a sure thing? Certainly not. We've only seen him do this with, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. But I don't understand why someone like Urban Meyer, who is generally considered to be a top 10 football coach of the last 50 years, period, why are we now sitting here and, like, expecting him to fail? That just does not make any sense to me. And Jacksonville has a lot of draft picks. And if they do well with them, which I think there's a chance with someone like that in charge that you can do well with them, you get Trevor Lawrence. I'm not going to sit here and say, look out. But if this offseason goes well for the Jaguars, with Urban Meyer at the helm and a competent quarterback, and there are some pieces on this team that are nice. James Robinson is a good football player. DJ Chark, Josh Allen I love. Uh, this is not going to be some sort of unmitigated disaster in 2021 as it was in 2020. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it, how it's going to work out. I, I think people are hesitant because there really isn't much precedent uh, to some of these high-profile head coaches coming into the NFL uh, and succeeding. Obviously, everyone points to Saban. Uh, and that, yeah, sure, you could say Pete Carroll from USC, but he was also a head coach before that with the Patriots. So it's not exactly, you know, a, a one-to-one comparison. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think he's going to fail miserably. I don't think this is a Saban with the Dolphins situation. There were other things at play uh, there. The The thing is the Jacksonville organization just is not in a good place, and they haven't been for a really long time. Uh, and they simply have to have to draft better going forward. Uh, and hopefully their owner doesn't have as much input, you know, as he previously uh, has, at least in terms of, of decision making uh, with personnel. So uh, I think if they allow him to 
to, to have a good amount of power in terms of uh, personnel decisions, and he makes the right hires. I think that'll be really important for him uh, to get the offensive and defensive coordinator positions right. Uh, I think he'll be fine. I, I, I don't think he's going to be outstanding, but I do think it's a step in the right direction uh, for the Jaguars because I don't know if there were really that many good other options for head coaches out there. Like, uh, where did Brandon Staley go? I don't even the, – the Rams defensive coordinator. Chargers. Uh Chargers, like that's, I don't know what that hire is, man. That that hire seems to me like really far fetched, really out there. Maybe it works out for them. I I really don't know, but that that was a weird one, and there really haven't been uh, too many great ones, in my opinion. I don't know what the Jaguars really could have done here, uh, and, and I think they made the right decision for the most part. So I think I've, I'll say this because I've got a lot to say about all this. Um, I think I've told y'all before, the thing that scared me the most this offseason was that Arthur Smith would go to the Jacksonville Jaguars, which some people have reported that that was the plan until Urban Meyer came available. I think that was uh, Benjamin Albright who said something to that effect, but that Arthur Smith would go to Jacksonville. He'd take Corey Davis with him because they have so much cap space there, and then he would draft Trevor Lawrence and run this the offense that we've been seeing in Tennessee there, and I think that would be – devastating i mean i think that would be a very good thing for jacksonville urban meyer has never faced adversity on the field in his life and come away he's never he's never scrapped his way out of it he's a habitual quitter it's what he's done everywhere he's always said oh you know it's crazy that we're starting to have a bad season because i hate to tell you all but my heart's hurting again I just don't know if I can do this. And then two years later, he resurfaces with another organization. Like he's just, he's just, you know, call him a liar, call him a quitter. They all fit. But he's a guy who's won in an atmosphere where he goes to the team with the highest payroll for their student athletes. They somehow manage to get great recruits. They are very familiar with the police. And for whatever reason, you have a team with Hernandez and the Pounceys and, Riley Cooper and Tim Tebow, and he makes that work just long enough to where, you know, it all explodes after he's gone, but nobody really is aware of it in the moment. And that's fine in a short term. And this is part of the reason why college coaches don't work in the NFL is you have no, there's no true control over an NFL player. Like these are adults who are going to live their own lives. You can't, they're not just stuck in your little microcosm and you can't say like, okay, this is when we're going to bed. This is when we're doing this. You know, you can't say all that. They're going to do what they're going to do. And you just have to trust that they'll show up on time. And if they don't, you can't cut them because they've got guaranteed money. They're not scholarship players. So that's, that's a big problem. And I'll bring this up too, Luke. Cause you said this, you said that for coaches, organizational fit is a big important thing i don't trust the con family at all uh, i mean they came out and said after they made their fire of doug marone that they were still going to be the ones that had heavy influence on who gets drafted no matter who the general manager is they said that the picks will be decided by them so there's not going to be any urban meyer like i know that that guy fits my scheme it's going to be I want another edge rusher. I want another cornerback. And I'm, that's what I'm going to draft high because that's what the cons have done. So, you know, I, I, I understand the theory that good coaches are good coaches. But I also understand that Urban Meyer has very rarely lost more than two games in a season in his entire career. And when he has lost them, it's been, is this year he's going to quit or is it next year? And, I mean, he just... He's not a guy who's ever dealt with losing well, and yeah. at the college level, that's fine because you get seven games against Akron and whoever you want as your layup teams for the first whatever, and you play two or three real games a year if you're somebody who can afford Urban Meyer. But then, if, if you're, you know, if Derrick Henry runs for 200 yards on Jacksonville, and they cut to Urban Meyer eating pizza on a golf cart after the game, well, you better buck up, dude, because you got 15 more games. Like, I mean. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think that he's a good offensive mind that has always had, like Nick Saban does at Alabama, where you've had so many five stars and incredibly talented players that when you go against a Tennessee 
or you go against an Arkansas or, you know, you go against one of those schools that doesn't have as as much talent. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're going to beat them if you're a confident coach because the deck's already stacked in your favor. I, I mean, that's where he's always gone and that's where he's always won. So I, I don't know. I've got low expectations for it, but he, I think this is great for urban Meyer because if there's ever a team that he's going to be able to slowly win two games, four, six games with and get praised for it, it'll be Jacksonville. I will say this. I think most of what you said was, was spot on. And I think that you present a compelling argument for the side of, well, he just might not do very well. I, I think I think you're on with a lot of that. I will say this though. I don't think Jacksonville has done a particularly horrendous job of drafting recently. I really don't. I mean, the New England Patriots have done far worse than than they have. Um, I. Well, I mean, have the last the, the roster though. The, 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 the la- I mean, the last two first round picks have been good. Uh, Allen and. Uh, uh, C.J. Henderson, both were have have turned out well. well they also had Caleb on Chase on, but you you are right. I, I do who played well the good. second half of the season? Caleb on Chase on did. Um, and then you know D.J. Chark, like I said. I mean, we don't have to go back over the roster. I'm just saying that it's not great, but I don't think it's. I mean, this isn't a like, uh, you know, the 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 Lions who are just kind of totally devoid of talent. I I don't know. I, I was going to bring this up because I've seen a lot of people say that they have a lot of offensive talent uh, that Urban Meyer will have his, at his disposal. Uh, I mean, James Robinson is good. Chark is is okay. He's kind of inconsistent. Chanel is like a Cordero Patterson type of player. Like I, but that's it. Like I don't I don't really see uh, what a lot of people are saying in terms of Urban Meyer being set up. Well, their O-line isn't awful. I'll, I'll give them that. But on the defensive side of the ball, like they still have huge holes and they still have holes on offense. And I think I think they're several years away from actually being able to compete uh, for a playoff spot. I think it's going to take a lot of time, especially if Lawrence isn't – if they draft Lawrence, first of all. And Lawrence isn't, you know, as hyped up as – as he's being, which Luke has already brought up that possibility that he's just not a sure thing. Like, we don't know. We've talked about this so many times before. We don't know. Uh, and a lot of these times for a lot of the time for these quarterbacks, a lot of it is is nurture over nature and what what your surrounding talent is uh, and and what your offensive coordinator can do to help you ha- to bring you along. So. I mean, there are a lot of what ifs in, in terms of this hire with Urban Meyer and the future of the Jaguars, and I'm interested to see it play out. Like, yeah, I want the Jaguars to be bad, but I, I think it would be pretty cool if Urban Meyer and Trevor Lawrence are are good and we can compete with them for, for a really long time. You know, who Will Titans... is going to disagree well, completely yeah, with that yeah. one. Well, I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll segue with this. You know who the Titans aren't going to be competing with for a long time? The Houston Texans. They might win three games in the next three seasons. What a disaster. And, and I'd like to point out, I'd like to toot my own horn. I called this. I didn't call it quite to this extent. I said before the season, I said, this is going to be the year the Texans collapse. This is going to be the year the Texans collapse. Bill O'Brien has been has been a fraud for years, and he's just been getting bailed out by J.J. Watt and Deshaun Watson, and the dam's going to break. Well, the dam broke in, like, week three when they fired Bill O'Brien, and the t- Texans ended up winning, what, two games? Four? Something very poor. And then, goodness gracious... We've gone with the Texans from being a poorly run football team, badly coached, to like, I mean, it's like a reality TV show. This is like a poorly scripted movie where, you know, we have Deshaun Watson supposedly being promised influence on a hire that he ultimately did not get influence on. And then you've got this Jack Easterby character who is a preacher and and is a character coach and not a football guy and you know like you know i'm i'm a religious guy i'm a christian i don't want my preacher running a football team this is just a very bizarre situation as you can probably tell i'm sort of running out of words to describe it there's never this is there's no precedent for anything like this and now the quarterback who has a no trade clause that he just signed like 
two months ago is wanting out, and you've got reports from the most reputable people in NFL media saying that Watson has likely played his last snap for the Texans. What a disaster. And I'll say this too, why would any coach want to go to the Texans? I don't understand why Nick Casario wanted to go to the Texans. Nick Casario is a Belichick disciple who, if he had waited, probably could have had a lot of other job opportunities. But he signed up for that? And what head coach... This is, see, this is, in my opinion, this is why we're seeing the Texans interviewing these undesirables like Leslie Frazier and the likes. Because I don't think anybody wants... If I'm Eric Bieniemy, I'd stay with Andy Reid for another year before I'd go to that organization and torpedo my future and my career by associating myself with that. Because you might end up with... You know, I don't know who their backup quarterback is. Is it Tom Savage or A.J. McCarron? One of the, it's A.J. McCarron. You're going to end up with A.J. McCarron and throw into you know, Brandon Cooks for a few games a year and Will Fuller still on his PED suspend. I mean, what a disaster. Like, there's nothing at this point, especially now that they're going to get rid of J.J. Watt and Deshaun Watson in all likelihood. There's nothing redeeming about this organization. And and I was not speaking in hyperbole when I said they might win three games over the next three seasons. No draft picks, too. Let me throw that in. By the way, A.J. McCarron is a free agent, so their backup right now is Josh McCown. Just just uh, Josh McCown. fun fact there. <laughs> yep, Josh McCown. Yeah, that's Ooh. real. That Are is you real. sure it's not Luke so, McCown? Oh, no. no, Josh McCown. Oh, my gosh. It's Josh McCown. Like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> uh, so, oh, I, I mean, the only reason – the only reason this job was attractive was because Deshaun Watson was the quarterback. There was literally, literally no other reason why any uh, offensive coordinator or up-and-coming coach would want to be the head coach of the Houston Texans, except for the fact that he gets to coach Deshaun Watson, and you know your offense is going to be top 10, top 5 in the league. Uh, but other than that, there's nothing redeeming about it. I mean, the owner is... Is bad. Like he, he makes terrible decisions. Uh, the front office is, is a disaster. Uh, you saw what happened with Bill O'Brien for the past five years or whatever it was. Like this. Plus, they don't have any draft picks. They haven't had draft picks for like three drafts. It's crazy, and they still don't this year. Uh, I don't know. I don't know next year. Probably. I assume that they, they will finally get some of their picks back. But I mean, I don't know. The only reason to even take this job right now, if you're someone, is is money. It, just to get money and I guess be part of a rebuild. I, I don't I don't know. Like like you said, if if you're Bienemy, even if you're Leslie Frazier, I don't even know if Leslie Frazier wants his job, man. Like he's a defensive coordinator for the Bills right now. They're in the AFC championship game. I don't know I don't know if there's a step up right now. I really don't. Yeah, so I think I told y'all I was doing this. I don't really know what I'm going to do with the information, but I'm kind of taking stock of the AFC South. Just I, I have this big spreadsheet. This is AFC South status report, and it's open on my uh, computer right now. So I think the Texans job is the second. Uh, I mean, hmm, I can't. I, I go back and forth whether it's the most undesir- undesirable or uh, the second most, just because. They don't have any money, so like they they're assuming a two. I have a two hundred dollars, two hundred million dollar cap uh, built into this. There's still three million dollars over the cap, so that I mean they basically have to trade away JJ Watt if they can if they can trade it. Like it wouldn't surprise me if he gets cut. Like I I, I don't know what the deal will be there. Um, then so even if they keep Watson. They're going to be in a situation where they don't have any money to spend. They're losing Will Fuller, so they have no backup for him. So they're going to have to replace him somehow. Keep in mind, they have one pick in the top 100 next year. They're losing Will Fuller. They're losing uh, one of their starting edges. They're losing two of their top three corners. So those are extremely expensive positions to lose. And you're losing that on a team with no draft picks and no cap space. So 
even if they get Eric Bieniemy, like let's this is the narrative that's going to be painted if Eric Bieniemy gets hired and Watson stays is how they pulled up from the nosedive and how everything's okay and and that it'll be a narrative of man that was almost really bad. But here's the thing, it's going to be bad regardless. Like you're missing several key pieces on your team. And even at the absolute height of what you expect the cap to be, you're only going to be about $10 million under it. And that's if you trade away the franchise's best player in, I mean, in history. So you're going to get bad PR from that. It's already bad PR now. There's no reason any head coaching candidate should go there anyway. And if the head coaching candidate didn't come along, specifically Eric Bieniemy, then Watson's gone too. I mean, this there is no ceiling to this next season in this offseason for the Texans. It is just how far will they sink and how bad is it going to get? And there is something very satisfying about watching that as a Titans fan. And on that note of talking about the Texans, it's time to get to stop the nonsense. It, it's crazy before we do that, though, that we've had this much to talk about with the 2020 Titans season. Like I said, we haven't even gotten into talking about, you know, uh, positions of need for the offseason and, and decisions other than the coordinator stuff. But that's that's more news than anything else because it's happening right now. Uh, and we'll have plenty more of the offseason stuff coming up because we love talking about that stuff. And there's certainly going to be a lot of that to talk about as well. But it's time for Stop the Nonsense, guys. Who would like to kick us off? I'll do it. I can do it. Uh, Okay. okay. Oh, no, no. I'll I'll jump in. Go ahead. Uh, Just, I I, I was going to let y'all go first because mine is kind of redundant with what I was just talking about. But it's... Sorry. I'm pulling up stats. That's why I couldn't say yes yet. (laughs) It's, It's all good. Uh... So mine is uh, the redundancy of the New Orleans Saints. And it may be redundancy in the right word. Maybe it's something harsher and meaner. But we're about to enter an era where the Saints go from being perennial Pro Bowl contenders to absolute bottom faders along with uh, the Houston Texans. And it's all because they just decided to push back their responsibilities and push back their cap hit year after year after year. And so now they're scheduled to be over a hundred million dollars over the cap next year because they just assumed the cap was never, was never going to be real. And look, I am team. The cap is fake, but when you're a hundred million dollars over the cap, that's a problem. And I would have no problem if they had to cut a few players and then be done with it to be under. But the way they structured the Drew Brees deal is really what what gets you because basically even if he retires, they'll owe him something like $20 million in bonuses and guarantees that they've pushed back regardless. And if he retires, I think it all becomes a lump sum that they have to pay him next year. So basically we're seeing – the saints implode because of bad bookkeeping and part of me thinks it's super interesting and funny because it's like, well, we're about to see what happens to a team that's so far above the cap that there's no, there's no bargaining your way out of it. But part of it is almost depressing because new Orleans is, is a tough place to have like lived and been a sports fan your entire life. And they got drew Brees for, a decade or a decade and a half, whatever it was. And that's great. He has been a pinnacle of, of, you know, professionalism and a beacon of what you want your athletes to be that that's all great. But I don't know if in two or three years, the saints are a destination organization anymore. And I think we could be seeing the first step towards a downward, downward spiral that lasts until they manage to land a number one quarterback in the draft somehow and it is going to get so bad before it gets better. So uh, my stop the nonsense with this is it's we're all going to be talking about how Drew Brees really carried this team and all that kind of stuff. This is all self-inflicted wounds from the Saints. And I feel like we're going to get a big pity party for them because, oh, the, you know, COVID really did them wrong. But they were going to have to do a lot of this anyway. So 
I just want everybody to take a moment and understand that this is why teams can't get every player. This is why moves like John Robinson signing Beasley and Clowney for one-year deals is not so bad in the long term because it doesn't have any long-term ramifications. This is the epitome of what a guy who's given a, a checkbook with unlimited amount of funds does and how it ends up torturing the franchise for another decade versus somebody who spends responsibly and picks their chances. I will jump in with mine, unless, Matias, you have a comment? No. Okay. okay. I heard the mic cut on, which is why I asked. Okay. So mine is a gripe I've had for some time. Uh, highlighted by the way the Ravens behaved after they beat the Titans in, in the wildcard round of the playoffs. But this this isn't really just the Ravens that I'm getting at here. I have a problem with teams who didn't win a championship acting like they won a championship. In any sport. I think it's worst in baseball. I think that is the sport that it is the worst in. Because you get these teams that barely snuck into the postseason and they win a wild card game. A wild card game. Meaning they still have to win three series to win the World Series. And they're in the locker room, or excuse me, the clubhouse, popping champagne. Why do we do this? You don't see Bill Belichick winning in the divisional round and throwing a party in the locker room and popping champagne. Your goal is to win a championship. And until you win a championship, you should not celebrate as though you have won a championship. Now, are you going to be a little more excited after a playoff win than you would be a regular season win? Absolutely you are. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that, and you should be. It's a, it's a big accomplishment. You celebrate it with your buddies in the locker room, you dap, you dap them up, and then 24-hour rule, and then it's let's get back to work. Well, the Ravens acted like they'd won the Super Bowl because they squeaked by the Titans in the first round of the playoffs. And we see what happens to them now, and they look like fools. And Will Compton put out a great meme where he took the picture of them uh, dancing on the Titans logo, and he put the crying Jordan face on all of them. I thought that was very funny. But stop celebrating non-championship wins as if they are championship wins. I'm not saying you can't celebrate. Have fun. Have a good time. But leave the champagne in in you know outside of the locker room until you're hoisting the trophy, please. Thank you. Yeah, that happens in soccer too. Like they'll they'll have big celebrations in the locker room after a big win, which is fine. I mean, like okay, you can celebrate a little bit, but not like you just won a championship. I feel like it's very, I don't know, weird and premature. So mine is obviously about Tom Brady because I knew this was going to happen. The Bucks won the game, won that game, uh, and I knew the media, at least some members of the media, were going to come out. And praise Brady for getting to the NFC Championship game, which, yeah, pretty cool. 43 years old. He actually had a really good season, but he he was not helpful. He was not helpful yesterday in getting this team to the NFC Championship game. The only reason they won was because Drew Brees threw three interceptions. So, a- anyway, Tom Coran uh, posts a, an article, Brady puts a stake through the heart of his haters. The goalposts can no longer be moved. The Brady is a product of the system claim died Sunday night in the Superdome. I don't understand using this game in particular as evidence that that Brady is not a product of a system. I mean, he completed 54% of his passes. Uh, I know these are fake stats, but he threw for six yards per attempt. And from my eyes, at least, he should have had two interceptions in this, in this game. Like, he wasn't good. The only reason they won is because Breeze kept turning the ball over and he couldn't get the Saints uh, past midfield. Uh, and the Bucks defense just carried them and the Bucks running backs carried the offense. Like, I don't understand why we why we have to, to pr- always praise the quarterback when football, a game that's played with 10 other teammates and 11 other teammates on the other side of the ball, it's a collective game. Like it's not it's not the quarterback. Yeah, the quarterback touches the ball on every offensive possession, but the quarterback in this game didn't even help them win the game. In fact, he he kind of hurt them at times. And the only reason he won and gets that QB win is because 
the, his teammates around him showed up. Uh, and this has happened in the past too, where where the the Patriots have won Super Bowls because their defense is always incredible, uh, and other players end up making amazing plays, like Edelman in, in the in the Falcons uh, Super Bowl, uh, James White in that one also. But then Brady takes all the headlines, and it's just. It's annoying, man. Like, great for him that he's doing this at 43 years old, but come on, man. Give some praise to the other players. Yeah, this is why people hate uh, Tom Brady. I mean, I think you're right, Matias. I'll say this, though. I I don't know that the argument is so much like – I'm not saying this is what Tom Curran said. I'm saying from my perspective. The argument isn't so much – oh, Brady killed the Saints in in the championship game. That means he's not a system guy. I will say this, though. You know, with mostly the same roster, sans an old Rob Gronkowski, the Bucks for ye- have not been to the playoffs for years, and Tom Brady comes in, and they are instantly in the NFC Championship game. No matter what the stats are, I think there's something to be said about that. That's fair, but we have to point out the fact that this is Arian's second year, and usually. Teams do better in the second year. Plus, the defense got better. Plus, Jameis just threw too many interceptions, and like Tom Brady has never done that. So, yeah, I guess you could give him some credit for that. But Jameis also threw for five thousand yards last year. So, this offense is pretty good. Well, I, I think that's going to do it for us. Uh, we appreciate everyone listening uh, as we have recapped the twenty twenty Titan season. We put a bow on it. Next time we come to you, it will be to preview the offseason. We're going to talk about the Titans needing a pass rusher. We're going to talk about the Titans needing several other things because if you didn't know, the defense stinks. So stay tuned for our next episode, and we'll start getting into all of that. Until then, for, for Will and Matias, I'm Luke reminding you and everyone else in the sports world to stop the nonsense. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.